Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the uh, fall 2019 um, inauguration of uh, the Helix Center. Um, I'm glad everyone could be here on such a beautiful day. My name is Jerry Hurwitz. I'm the Associate Director at the Helix Center. And today um, we have a, a, a roundtable on the topic of lying. Before I, um, we commence, I want to mention that on October 5th, our second roundtable is on the mechanization of, math, of mathematics. So let me uh, go on and introduce our esteemed panelists today. First of all, unfortunately, Patricia Churchland, who was uh, scheduled to be on our panel, fell ill and was unable, unable to make it today. But we do, we do have a, a fill-in, um, Martin Garbus. If you would raise your hand so we know who you are, is here. He's an attorney and has taught at several prestigious law schools in the U.S. Dr. Anna Ballas, if you'd raise your hand, is Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College and a training and supervising analyst at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. She's been um, in private adult and child psychiatric practice in Manhattan over 35 years and is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Neil Garrett is a Henry Welcome Research Fellow in Cognitive Neuroscience at Oxford University. His research centers around aversive behavior and learning. As part of this, he has led a new line of inquiry examining the role of emotional adaptation in decision making. And I think he's going to tell us more about that today. Emma Edelman Levine is an assistant professor of behavioral science and the Charles Merrill Faculty Scholar at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She's, she was recently recognized as a rising star of the Association of Psychological Science in 2019. Emma studies the psychology of altruism, trust, and ethical dilemmas. Dr. Francis X. Shen is the executive director of the Harvard uh, Mass General Hospital Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior, an instructor in psychology at Harvard Medical School, senior fellow in law and applied neuroscience at the Harvard Law School Petrie Flom Center, and an associate professor of law, um, McKnight Presidential Fellow, and faculty member in a graduate program on neuroscience at the, at the University of Minnesota. <clears throat> Jonathan Stray is a computational journalist at Columbia University where he teaches the dual master's degree in computer science and journalism and leads the development of Workbench, an integrated tool for data journalism. He's contributed to the New York Times, The Atlantic, Wired, Foreign Policy, and ProPublica. And sitting on, us, sitting on the panel as well to help moderate is our uh, executive director, Ed Nersessian. So thanks very much. Okay. Well, I was thinking just to get the ball rolling about, and not to have this start out necessarily in a, on a political line, although I'm sure that's on several of the minds of our audience today, um, that part of our founding mythology includes, uh, of course, the truth-telling uh, traits of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and uh, both known for their honesty, of course. And that also brought me brought back to my attention a wonderfully humorous 
television commercial some years ago where Honest Abe was sitting in his bedroom and uh, Mary Todd Lincoln uh, portrayed in the commercial, I don't know what she really looked like as being a little portly, was getting dressed in a, in a dress. And she turns to Abe and she says, do I look fat? And Abe turns and looks at the camera like, oy vey. <laughs> what am I going to say? So, of course, lying is something even, even for George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, everyone has engaged in at some point. So I guess the question is, why is lying a problem or when does lying become a problem? So I'd like anyone to sort of jump in. about your example a little bit. I'm not going to quite answer your question and instead think about when lying isn't a problem, but maybe that creates the blurred line of kind of when it's not a problem and when it is. Um, right, so if you ask most people, like, what should a person say when someone who can't change asks how they look in the dress, they'll say, you should lie. The right thing to do is to lie. And if you ask people, would you want it to be lied to if you, know, you couldn't change, if there was no time to institute feedback? They'd say, yes, I want to be lied to. And so we actually have all these implicit rules that we think a lot of lies are ethical. A lot of lies can build trust. A lot of lies we seek ourselves um, right at the end of the life, when we're vulnerable, when we can't institute change. And so there is this whole category of lies that you know, most people agree are good. And then you know, I think maybe other people can talk to this more. Right? That blurs the line of then, well, when, right, when, how do we figure out when it's no longer good? I'll take a shot at this. Um, so uh, a framework that I sometimes use is uh, uh, to think of communication as persuasion, right? And so we have this idea in, in a democracy with a free press, we should be able to persuade each other that we're right. But we also have these ideas about what types of persuasion are legitimate. So if you look at advertising, um, if you look at uh, politics, um, all of these different fields have sort of developed norms and sometimes laws. So for example, um, you can't pretend to be someone else, right? If you publish the same message and pretend to be a political candidate uh, falsely, um, if that candidate had said it, it might have been perfectly fine. Um, it's generally frowned upon to try to use um, psychological manipulation of various sorts, right? So if you know something about the psychology of the person you're trying to persuade that they're perhaps not aware of, um, then that's considered illegitimate. Um, and so there are all these categories beyond simply speaking an untruth. Um, and uh, many of them are, are fairly well developed and consistent across a lot of fields. Yeah, um, I just sort of want to uh, link to something that Emma said there, which, um, and Jonathan as well to some extent, that you know, lying is just so many different types of them. And how we categorise them, I think to some extent gets to this question of, you know, who are the um, beneficiaries of the lie and who are the ones that are harmed? So, like, Emma's totally right. Like, when kids start to lie, we often, to some extent, think that's a good thing in certain circumstances. Like, if they're given a present that's terrible, we want them to say, wow, thank you, what a fantastic present that was, you know? <laughs> so that's a context where we think lying is a good thing, but then there are other lies which are actually legal. Like, if I go in somewhere and pretend I'm a police officer, if I lie under oath, that's there's a very clear signal of society that that is not okay because they have a law against it. And I think the reason for that is because, you know, people are harmed by that. You can potentially 
frame an innocent man and it has all these um, sort of consequences, whereas in the present example it's actually benefiting most people um, from the lie. So, you know, in theory you could take each lie on a sort of case-by-case case, take a sort of utilitarian perspective and say, you know, who is getting harmed, who is benefiting from this lie, and use that as a sort of measure of when it's, whether it's a good or a bad, a bad thing. I'm a lawyer and I deal with the creation of lies. Uh, honest people tell honest stories that I made up to achieve a certain social justice end that I perceive. And if faced with the issue of whether there should be a truthful answer or an answer that pursues my concept of justice, the decision for me is an easy one. <laughs> and if you are part of a system of law, which is a system of lying, and you seek to achieve a certain goal, you first have to accept that that's the structure of that system, and then you decide what to do. I just spent some time down on the border where uh, immigrants were trying to get into the United States through the Trump regime. Uh, and uh, they will ask questions, and the whole question of truth and how they answered them uh, became very significant. Their lack of awareness of truths, for example, if they had been raped a year ago, then the government concluded they were damaged then and should not have waited a year to come into the United States. If you looked at the damage, you could say the damage was there a week ago. So then if you're faced with a witness like that, who's going to go before a judge, you have to decide, or somebody has to decide, or there has to be some input as to what that witness's answer is. The truth a year ago, or the truth, the damage is there today. Okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, so uh, several of the answers have suggested that, well, there are certain times that it's a problem because the law says it's a problem to lie. But if you take a step back, you have to ask yourself, why has the law determined that certain instances it's problematic to be deceptive or to not tell the truth? And other times we allow it, whether in the name of national security or in the name of justice or in the name of something else. So that's one challenge. Your original question was, when is it a problem to lie? Setting aside that bigger question, which maybe we'll get to, it is the case that, again, coming from the law, if Honest Abe had to answer that question under oath, he can say oy vey, but he has uh, a duty to do a certain thing, whereas he may strategically decide, I don't want to tell you the truth. So. Once inside a courtroom or inside generally legal proceedings, um, there are some added complexities uh, that we have sort of socially determined should be there for one reason uh, or another. And we even use the word fact finder for a judge or a jury. And if, for instance, they have to figure out whether or not Mary Todd Lincoln was obese or not, they want to know, um, you know all the information that uh, they can. And, and they rely on 
witnesses hopefully being at least <laughs> uh, purporting to be honest. Well, it's interesting just to quickly jump back on the, the issue of him, ha Abe, having to answer that question under oath. Of course, there's another wrinkle to it, which is he's the only one who knows whether she looked fat. So even under oath, he might be able to, you would, I'm, it's just another wrinkle. I mean, you're right to point out that under oath, people have, are seen to be compelled to say the truth more. But in certain instances like this one, where it's a piece of private information that is not shared with anyone, in this case, whether or not she looked fat to him, he could continue to lie, even under oath. So that's another wrinkle to the, to the whole issue of lying. Or he could love her so much that to him, she didn't look fat. So uh, we as analysts are concerned with the subjectivity of people's perception and also when are they lying to themselves, when are they lying to others, and um, also with children, what do we teach them and how do they learn to be truthful? That's a whole other dimension. We're very interested in both people's motivation for being truthful or lying and also how that develops as they, um, as they grow up. So for instance, when you um, um, ask that question about honest aid, it made me think about the Hans Christian Andersen tale of the emperor's new clothes where everybody said, oh, these clothes are absolutely magnificent. And it was a little child who said, but he's naked. So the little child hadn't yet learned to be uh, an obsequious courtier. Uh, and in that sense, he was truthful. Um, so that's a very interesting story about what we teach our little children and how do they grow up to be truthful or liars. Uh, or, and also, how do they grow up to be tactful versus um, ruthlessly um, brutal <laughs> in their statements? And there's a lot to be thought about on that. One thing I think is confusing for children is right, one of the things we tell them is if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Right? And there's this kind of comfort, I think, in the law, too, with this distinction between omission and commission. Right? We can all go around not saying anything, not saying anything to my wife, changing the subject, saying something, you know, your eyes are beautiful, I've never seen you look happier. Right? We can create these, these statements that are technically true or technically non-lies that still allow a person to be deceived and that's you know what makes it easier easy for us to justify deception engage in deception without feeling too guilty um, but but something interesting that I've found is that targets of deception are really not sensitive to these differences so I go through great mental gymnastics to figure out how do I deceive this person without explicitly lying because somehow I know lying is bad but you've been deceived, you don't really care how I did it, right? The victim of a deception in negotiations or the victim of even kind of false positive hope doesn't care that you didn't explicitly say an untruth, they care that your intention was to deceive. The question of intention is really interesting. Um, I, when I teach this, and if I ask the students first thing, um, what, how would you define a lie? And we get, you know, I'm sure if we went around this room, 50 different answers, and one of the big breaking points is whether or not intention is required. And this gets to your, uh, your point. Um, if one subjectively, truly, honestly believes something, but it is objectively false, and there's wonderful research by a number of psychologists on this point, 
um, one from Beth Loftus' group many decades ago now, um, she can implant, sort of quote unquote, implant a memory of seeing Bugs Bunny at Disney World. And you'd never see Bugs Bunny at Disney World because, uh, you know, at different companies. And these participants in the research studies will swear up and down that they remember seeing Bugs Bunny at Disney World. Um, same thing if I misremember who the fifth president of the United States was. Am I lying? I didn't intend to, right? I intended to actually give the right answer. How do we categorize that? Um, and I'm sure we all have different answers for that. But of course, it gets to your question to begin with. What is a lie? <laughs> yeah. I think that also gets into the idea of this difference between deception and self-deception, right? And there is this theory that, you know, humans and animals and even, you know, viruses have evolved to self-deceive. And we think the reason for that is if I want to deceive someone, I give off a lot of telltale signals. You know, my voice might contract, my eyes will, um, my pupils will dilate, my um, fingers will start sweating. So all these signals can be read if I am telling a lie with intention there. But if I actually believe that lie myself, you know, if I actually believe um, that I'm fantastic, you know, that I've got all these amazing superpowers, if I actually really believe that, then those telltale signals that I give off aren't there anymore. So if that intention isn't there, then I'm better able to deceive others. So there's this theory that actually we've evolved not to have that intention there in some cases so that we can sort of um, are better able to um, sell better versions of ourselves to others around us. And of course, people like actors are, you know, especially good at it. Um, I don't know how many of you remember um, Peter Sellers. He was a very um, a wonderful comedic actor, and he died rather young of a heart attack. And when I read his obituary in Time magazine, it was Time or Newsweek, it was saying how when he got into a role, he couldn't get out of it. <laughs> he had this kind of a little bit of a quality of as if, what we call as if personality in our um, mm. language. He just couldn't get out of it. And he was superb, you know, at it. Yeah. Um, mm. um, also, if you talk about young children, they're so suggestible. So um, this is kind of a, a tricky subject that also um, has connections with the law, which is, for instance, young children who are molested. And you know, since I'm a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, work with kids, the whole issue of truth and um, falsehood in the area of trauma is something that's of great interest to me. So um, we have an old analyst, Ferenczi, from a long time ago, who wrote a paper about, it's called Confusion of Tongues Between um, Adults and Children. And one of the things that he describes very eloquently is the way when children are molested, um, let's say a young child, often the perpetrator is someone like an uncle or someone in the family who knows the kid and says, oh, this will be our little secret. Don't tell anybody. So not only does the child have the trauma, but they also then have the burden of secrecy and kind of borrowing the guilt of the grown-up and having to collude with them. And so it's, it's, it's really terrible. And then, because we're analysts, when it comes up in the analytic situation, it gets very complicated because these feelings get revived in the treatment and then they're not sure about well, can I trust the analyst? Are they going to do bad things to me? So the whole thing gets re recreated in that situation. So anyway, that's just, um, it's a very complicated matter. And a lot of people um, get caught up with trying to figure out, well, um, 
the, the, there was a, a scandal, for instance, in the late 80s, I think, where all these nursery school teachers were accused of molesting little children. And to this day, we don't really know whether that was true or not, because the way that children were interviewed by the cops, who were not terribly knowledgeable about child development, was so um, uh, suggestive that the kids complied and they mm. said, yes, yes, these things happened. And uh, we don't know. Yeah. So, so when it comes to, um, just one other point about this, when it comes to truthfulness, I think that especially children, let's say, at the age of five or six, are very malleable about what, uh, not because they can't perceive the difference between truth and, uh, and untruth, but because they're so much at the mercy of the authorities either because of their wish for love or fear of punishment. So it's always very problematic to put um, a young child on the witness stand or to rely on the testimony of a young child unless you understand who it is that has kind of, if you will, brainwashed them. And then if you you extrapolate that to more suggestive, malleable personalities, then some grown-ups can be like that too. People talk about... PTSD, Stockholm Syndrome, you know, people who as adults are very um, brainwashed to tell whatever they're supposed to tell. And then there are, of course, other people who are much stronger and don't um, give in. So so there is a question of coercion when it comes to lying. Okay, that's a whole other topic now. Well, if there's a, if there's a let's say there's a, a tendency in terms of natural selection towards suggestibility or self-deception. I would imagine it's not something, well, um, I I believe it's not something that everyone has inherited equally, that there are people more suggestible and less, and there are people who are better at suppressing or not having those feelings that often are associated with telling lies. And in the extreme, think of psychopaths, as being very, you know, not responding to lies mm-hmm. and telling lies without any sort of physiological uh, effect. So what do you think about the idea that there may be different types of people, that we could sort people in this regard? That's a great question. Maybe I can um, mention a study that I've done that maybe speaks to this point uh, to some extent. So... Um, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, so we run a lot of experiments in the lab um, where we actually can um, see um, how willing people are to be dishonest to someone else. And what we've looked at is um, how this changes over time and how it varies with people's emotional reaction when they um, choose to be dishonest. So we're able to measure their emotional reaction by using one of these machines called an fMRI scanner. So that can um, show you in brain regions associated with emotion what your emotional reaction is when you choose to be dishonest. And what we found in our study was quite interesting. We found that, first of all, um, people started being dishonest by a small amount. And when they were being dishonest by a small amount in those early days, um, they had a really strong emotional reaction um, in brain areas like the amygdala, for example, which we know is important for emotional processing. But as we gave people more and more opportunities to be dishonest, we saw that the emotional response decreased and we saw that their lying subsequently increased um, as, uh, as a consequence. 
And that's consistent with other, ideas, other studies that have shown that emotion is really important for sort of um, governing how dishonest we're willing to be. So, for example, if you give um, students um, beta blockers, which is a, um, a type of pill which um, lowers your emotional response, cheating will increase on a, on a test that you give those students because when that emotion is not there, sort of restricting people's dishonesty, it seems that people are more willing to be dishonest as a result. So we think emotion is really important for um, governing how dishonest people are willing to be. And that really speaks to this point of individual differences. You know, maybe some people, whether it's by nature or by nurture, you know, just have stronger emotional responses than other people, and that allows some to be more dishonest than others. Mm-hmm. But one of the sort of, I suppose, alarming points of our study is that this emotional response seems to decrease in everyone through a process which we know, a brain process called adaptation. So that's... Um, a process we know that happens with lots of sensory information, for example, so with smells. You know, if you buy a new perfume, for example, um, you might initially put a couple of drops on and you'll smell it really, really strongly, okay? But after a few days, you won't smell it as much, so you need to put a, put a bit more on, right? Emotions do the same thing. So when we start off being dishonest, we have a really strong emo- uh, emotional response, but through this act of repetition, this emotional response will automatically adapt it will decrease, and as a result, we can be more dishonest um, as a consequence. So that suggests if you just put people in a context where you give them lots and lots of opportunities to be dishonest, even if they initially have a very strong emotional reaction to, to that, and that will sort of stop them being very dishonest in that situation, by giving them lots and lots of opportunities, this uh, process of emotional adaptation would take place, and there's a good chance that their dishonesty will, will increase as a, as a consequence of that. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It feels to me that we are sort of inevitably circling around the idea of truth, um, and so I wanted to to maybe say a couple of things about that. Um, uh, there's this idea of an epistemic virtue, that is, uh, virtues or rules of thumb or moral commandments that deal with knowledge. Um, so um, the most concise statement of this is, I only want to believe those things which are true. Um, but then we have the problem of, well, okay, how do we determine whether something is true? And as the flyer for this event pointed out, we mostly rely on secondhand knowledge. Um, I and my colleagues are in the business of producing this sort of secondhand knowledge. And um, it's kind of a complicated process, right? Uh, there are um, standards for reporting. Um, there are, so I do a lot of work with statistics and data. Um, there are all sorts of issues about the validity of statistics and, and the sorts of analyses that you do. Um, there's the issue of uh, reputation. So, you know, part of why you should believe what I write is because I was right last time, or maybe because you haven't heard of me being wrong, which is not quite the same thing. Um, and then there's uh, transparency. Um, part of how I can build trust with you, hopefully, is to let you in on my process. What are my reasons for believing this is true? Um, so, uh, you know, in the, in the era of the internet, this has actually gotten a lot easier. I can do something like link to the court filings that I'm basing my story on. I could maybe include uh, an audio recording of an interview if, if the source will consent to that. Um, but uh, a lot of the time, it sort of has to come down to reputation because it's difficult to put that whole process uh, in a story. If you're doing a complicated statistical analysis, most people aren't going to be 
uh, technically equipped to go through that line by line anyway. Um, and there are many important stories that can only be got by uh, anonymous sourcing, right? Uh, so people won't tell you certain things unless you can guarantee um, to keep their name out of it. Um, and I think every field has some complicated construction of truth, right? You know, why should we believe uh, what uh, a lawyer argues at trial? Why should we believe what you say in your paper? Um, but the processes by which we actually produce these truths remain opaque. Um, and this is almost the definition of truth for me. Uh, rather than asking about, in some abstract way, is this true or not, uh, I, I try to ask, what is the process by which this community decides what is true? And so that's one way of getting at it. And, uh, you know, that can go wrong in a lot of ways, right? Um, there's there's self-deception in every field. What about bias? What about bias? I knew you were going to ask me this eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the challenges with the whole topic of media bias is that there isn't really a ground truth. Um, of course, articles can have factual errors, uh, but as anyone who's gotten into this fight knows, um, there are a number of problems with trying to distinguish fact from opinion, uh, and there are a number of problems with deciding which facts are relevant. So, um, you know, to take a sort of really glaring example, right? Um, you might be talking with someone who says, you know, Trump is terribly racist. Okay, well, what has he done that's racist? And you will get a list of, of things that he's done or said. Uh, and then you'll just get into an argument about whether those things are racist or not. So you're not really contesting the facts at that point. So uh, media bias suffers from this problem of you, it's very difficult to establish a ground truth of sort of what objective journalism looks like. Having said that, what you can do is you can do analyses of uh, political leaning, right? So does this story talk about a, a subject in a way that a left-wing person would talk about it, or does it talk about it in the, in the way that a right-wing person would? And you can do this in various ways, such as, uh, for example, frame analysis, right? So if you have a story about policy or, uh, poverty, um, to generalize greatly, uh, on the left it's considered to be a societal problem or the fault of the environment in which the person grew up. On the right it's more commonly considered to be, uh, you know, they're lazy or they weren't educated enough or, or so on. So you can do these types of things and when you do them you find, uh, the results are very unsurprising, right? You find that the New York Times is slightly left of center and, you know, Fox is, is farther to the right and, you know, um, MSNBC is farther to the left, and it's, it's not really a shock. So I think we can all perceive these political biases already. Um, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe we're asking the wrong questions about media bias. I mean, beyond the sort of straightforward factual issues, which admittedly sometimes is a problem, um, uh, I wonder if we are, a lot of the conversation around media bias is sort of a proxy for the hope that uh, media figures will wage our political battles for us, uh, which, depending on your theory of journalism, either is or is not their job. Yeah, interesting. So maybe I can sort of ask a provocative question related to that. Is like, do you think truth is 
sort of under threat because you know you used to have these um, select media heavyweights you know that had that reputation attached to them you know these certain papers certain tv channels that provided news but now the barriers to entry of entering this world are like plummeted right with the internet so there's just so many sources out there like the reputation thing sort of dissolves to some extent do you think that's a, a problem i think we are at a very interesting moment for um authority and trust um and so i'm, I'm interested to hear about your trust research um so I can say a couple things. So trust in journalism is at a historic low. Um, it started decreasing before the transformation of the internet, so the 1970s. Uh, and no one really is quite sure why. Of course, there's various theories. Um, trust in American institutions in general is at uh, historic lows at this point. So maybe it just piggybacks off that. Um, for a long time, one of the classic critiques of media was that it's just a few powerful people and they're not really representative. Uh, so we wanted to tear down the gatekeepers, and we did. Uh, and now we're, I think, relearning the role of gatekeeper and, and what sort of value they provided. Um, I, I'm optimistic, actually. I think a lot of people are pessimistic about the concept of truth. Uh, I'm more optimistic than that, and I think in part that's because I... Uh, have a certain amount of professional uh, visibility into the institutional processes that are springing up to try to combat this. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal has a 21-person team uh, to deal with um, AI-generated fake imagery, right? They don't do this every day, but they have their, their community of experts and they have their policies and standards. So I, I have a, a very privileged position in some way in that I get to see the way that various types of uh, media and technology institutions are gearing up to deal with these problems. And I don't know, it's hard to say if that will be successful or what even success would look like, but I can tell you that there is a response, right? It's something, it has become a, a field of endeavor. Just thinking about this idea of trust, I think it's it's complicated because many of us think about trust and truth as intrinsically linked, but for lots of people, they're not. So I can trust you and want to affiliate with you because you make me feel good. You give me the content that I want to hear that supports my worldview, even if I recognize it might not be truthful. So, right, so we can choose friends and engage in partner selection around kind of beliefs about loyalty and uh, emotion and benevolence, like whether this person supports us that have nothing to do with truth. And so I think that's, you know, relevant to how we think about media and how we think about choice of leaders, too, is, right, there might be a recognition that maybe this isn't truthful, but what I look for, you know, I think it's hard for many to believe, like, in news, but in a leader is not necessarily truth. It's, it's other things that are important to mm -hmm. kind of living the life that I want to live, and that can drive trust, trust um, nearly as much, sometimes more than kind of a belief in honesty. I think an old and very interesting piece of literature that addresses these concerns that's worth revisiting is 1984, uh, which I reread sometime within the last couple of years. Um, and it's fascinating because uh, the protagonist, um, you know, it's, it's a sort of um, negative utopia. They're, they're trying to hide the truth rather than... Uh, but they do it in a very systematic propaganda way. 
and he's trying to figure out who he can trust in this place of profound mistrust. And the person who he thinks maybe has a common thinking with him ends up being the person who's trying to get him to betray himself to, and then eventually gets brainwashed. I mean, it is a pretty uh, gory story, but it's kind of a real um, illustration of how desperately people want to have that sense of um, someone they can look up to and connection and how that can then be uh, misused and exploited. And just, um, mm. I know it was written a long time ago, but I think it's, uh, it's pertinent, uh, perhaps not so much to our place, but just to think that such things exist. And I don't really know what's going on in China, for instance, and how much is it still uh, um, the way they try to block things to have one official message and uh, everything else uh, gets forcefully suppressed and so forth. Don't you think people still can make a distinction between someone they might like, they might like or want to affiliate with or whose perhaps minor lies they can uh, abide by with someone that they can recognize in, in distinction of that, people who are really truth tellers. Like that they're, like for example, I can recognize when, I like to think, can recognize when a story's fair and unbalanced, and balanced rather, um, and I can recognize when I think it's biased. And I think people make those distinctions. I'm not so sure the public is um, concerned to make those distinctions at large. I mean, yeah, I think it. Depends. I mean, it, yeah, coming back to this trust versus truthfulness. So that's a, a really key distinction that's made in a, a book that's come out recently by Steve Martin and Joe, Joe Marks. And they talk about um, the U.S. president, you know, um, like among his supporters, he's not seen as someone who's very truthful, but they really feel that they can trust him because he, in a lot of ways he has delivered on what he said he would. You know, he has tried to build a wall. He has lowered taxes. He has made it difficult for people from Muslim countries to get in here. So they, in a way, they don't mind his dishonesty, I think, if it's serving their, their, their cause. And I think that's true in general of dishonesty. It's not how we judge it is depending on what it's sort of doing for us. And that's, I think that's probably true of media bias as well. Like, you know, there's a whole field of um, motivated reasoning. You know, in some ways, we probably quite enjoy reading media that we think is biased. If it's biased in a direction that suits our, um, you know, you nice know suits our view mm -hmm. of the world that we want to believe and buy into. Audience metrics supports that view. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is part of what's happened, is that the lower, lowering of the barriers to entry have made it possible for media to specialize. And so if you just had, you know, if you have three cable news networks, uh, if you have to decide whether ABC goes left or right, you lose half your audience. Mm. But now you can be the left-wing outlet, or you can be the right-wing outlet, or you can be the, like, Housewives in Arkansas outlet, right? We're, we're in an era of niche media, which has led to a proliferation of, of choice in, in terms of political orientation. You know, it's interesting from the law side. So our Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior um, thinks a lot about the role of new science and technology in helping potentially to achieve more truthful and just outcomes. I think one of the success stories in law is the introduction of DNA evidence over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. And the precursor to that is to say that um, unlike some other fields where there is, um, I think, a sense that the goal is if it goes into print, it's as best you can do the truth, uh, I suspect, right? We take an adversarial model in the law. 
And we teach our students to write a persuasive set of facts. And sure, when you're in front, Marty, you tell facts. And the other side tells facts. And they're honest. And yet, listening to them, it sounds like two completely different things happen. And we actually embrace that. And the idea is that we'll have it out with these procedural rules in the courtroom. And that the fact finder will have to sort of sift between the two. It would be the equivalent of saying, you have to sit for an hour and watch Fox News, an hour and watch MSNBC, and then you make your decision. One other interesting thing about law, I was thinking about it uh, when you were mentioning anonymous sourcing, it's, the, um, it's really the opposite in law, and especially in a criminal case where there's something called a front confrontation clause, a right to confront your accuser and look your accuser in the eyes. Uh, it's, it's one of the problems when a witness dies, a key witness dies, you often can't go forward with the case because that person has to appear in the courtroom. It's a really interesting way to, to get at truth. Uh, and I'll just leave you with this quote. It comes from a Supreme Court case on the issue that had to do with whether or not we should introduce the polygraph into court proceedings. The polygraph, by the, used is, by the way, is used routinely in police investigations, but it's not typically admissible in the courtroom. And um, Justice uh, uh, Thomas said, the jury is the lie detector. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, the jury is the lie detector. That's, let, that's let right. Let me just say with reference to that, what I do is I try jury cases. So I've, let's say, tried hundreds of them. And one of the most interesting explorations is speaking to a jury after you've tried a case and seeing what they heard and what they evaluated. And it's a place in the country where the people are relatively responsible for their own lives within government and they can make important decisions about their lives, and they are entrusted with the responsibility of making, uh, making decisions about the lives or deaths of people who are before them. So you have this creation of a truth-seeking system, which is as good as anything else, and the extent to which it's perverted or supported is fascinating, and the ways in which you learn to support it or pervert it is fascinating. How much of um, the social networks, how much influence does that have? Um, I'll be biased in asking the question this way, in perverting that effort to sort of establish the truth widely. Well, juries come in with extraordinary biases. Your job as a lawyer is to find out those people whose biases are yours, the ones you want. <laughs> your, your job as a lawyer is to find out which people you can influence, either by being truthful or untruthful. So the effect of the media uh, is uh, in there every second of every court day. I tried a case recently in Miami involving Cubans and the politics in Miami. Uh, so uh, we had to, and I represented someone in New York years ago called Kathy Boudin, which was a murder oh, case Kathy, years, yes. <laughs> which was a murder case years ago. And the question of trying to rid the jury of biases a fascinating thing, I'll just tell you one story. There was a case in Harrisburg, and it, it happened to be something called the Berrigan case, which was tried a long time ago. Uh, it was uh, priests who had uh, put blood on weapons of war 
and they were being prosecuted. And one of the jurors was a woman who was, whose son had been jailed uh, uh, because she believed, the sons believed, as the defendants in this case, that the war was horrible and there are certain things you should do with respect to it. So she was the perfect juror for us. And we did everything we could to keep her on, and they did everything they could to knock her off. Uh, at the end of the case, the defendants were convicted, in large part because of this woman. And we then sat down with her, and she was gracious enough to uh, allow us to have her examined by psychologists, psychiatrists. And what really happened is that she was furious at these defendants because her son was in jail. I think coming back to your sort of question about social media, I think one sort of problematic aspect of it is it just is making spreading dishonesty easier, right? Like um, in lots of different ways. So coming back to this idea of emotion, you know, if I'm actually being dishonest to, pers- to, to someone in person, I'm going to feel, probably feel quite bad about that, but if I can do it through a click of a button, it's sort of much more indirect. It's much further removed. Um, and the, uh, one of the other interesting things is that often dishonest information seems to spread quicker than true information. I think part of the reason for that is often it's, more, sen- it's more sensational, it's more novel, so you know, it propagates through things like Twitter much faster than um, true information. So. So in many instances, sort of justice seems to trump what's true about something, let's say. Or people are motivated by thinking that they're following some path of justice, and that sort of means biasing or telling a little falsehood may not be so bad after all. A little story again. Yeah. <laughs> in, in Anatomy of Murder, a film some of you may remember, uh, the man walks in to see the lawyer. And he says, I killed so-and-so. And And, uh, the lawyer then says to him, my wife, I killed my girlfriend. So the lawyer then says to him, so the lawyer then says to him, well, listen, if you come in and say that you picked up a gun and you were angry and you killed this woman, your wife, your girlfriend, you will be convicted and sentenced to die. If you come in and tell us that you were upset, you had totally lost any sense of sanity, that morning you tried to fly to the roof, and you tell us that story, and if you come in, you will be found not guilty by reason of insanity. So the lawyer then says, come in tomorrow and tell me what happened talking about truth in the legal system and the different ways you deal with it. But you're trying cases, right? You are in the service of a defendant or, or uh, and your legal duty is to help them win their case. What about, what about the judge in this? What's their duty well, or their obligation? Is the legal duty to win the case? Is the legal duty to truth? Is the legal duty to be in a legal system that values truth, is, is it my duty to participate in a system that undermines truth? And uh, the question is, what are the values? It's not merely, it can't merely be 
to get people off, or can it be? So I think that's an interesting issue. Uh, my friend here mentioned Elizabeth Loftus. Elizabeth Loftus spent years trying to determine uh, how people saw truth. And, you know, what, what, what she said, and it's a, it's a Bible in the law, is they see it as they want or as their influence. So what happens if you have a legal system where truth is fundamentally irrelevant? That's a dark thought to me. <laughs> I put it on the table. <laughs> I mean, but, but you would agree that the, the judge has a different responsibility than the lawyer who's representing a client. No judge doesn't have a system of bias. No judge. In other words, the, the, the concept of the United States Supreme Court years ago is that these were people who had a sense of the law, and they made their judgments based on the law, free from bias. A, most people no longer believe that, if they believed long ago. If you look at the law back in 1810, 1850, uh, and you look at the Constitution, which says this or that about slavery, you no longer believe that anybody is making judgments free of bias. Now, I was with a law professor who had written eloquently about justice and truth in the law. Uh, very respected, he taught at Oxford, taught at NYU. After Bush against Gore came out, he threw it all away. What? Can't hear you. After Bush against Gore, he threw it all away. He became persuaded that truth was not the issue, that there were other things determining that decision. Well, so that means there's no way to determine whether someone's biased, very biased, a little biased, or hardly biased. I mean, in other words, there are degrees of bias, and that there are characters who demonstrate their uh, equanimity before the truth. Right, and the illusion I think that we've given up, and it relates to the question you were talking about, the question you asked, is a judge is free of bias and he's committed to the law. Nonsense. I would like to uh, stay on the subject but change it slightly uh, in the question of being free of bias and impartial and um, how do you um, assess things. Um, I have done a lot of work <clears throat> with children uh, of divorce where it's a pretty acrimonious situation. And there you're trying to be witness, jury, <laughs> judge, sort of. Because each of the parents is, gives you a very brainwashed version of their side. Because I'm talking about, not about peaceful divorces. I'm talking about situations where the kids are really caught in the middle of World War III. And so you as the advocate of the child, and I've never gone to court. This is not about going to court. It's about helping and protecting the best interest of the child. You'll get two different versions of the truth, and if it's highly intelligent, high-functioning people, they can be extraordinarily um, convincing and persuasive. You find out the worst possible things about each other, and uh, 
It's perplexing because when you talk to one parent, they convince you of their point of view, and you're saying, oh, okay. Then you talk to the other parent, they convince you of their point of view, you're saying, well, wait a minute, now which is the truth? And then you say, ah, this is what life is like for this poor child. All the time they're being torn back and forth. How does a child like this develop a cohesive sense of integrity, of values, of knowing right from wrong, of figuring out who to trust and what to trust, if the two people in their life that they love and would like to trust are at war and telling such terrible things about each other with such conviction. And it could go down the line, whether it's about visitation, about how much the kids should be studying, how strict or loose, uh, how much um, time they should get on the media, you name it. Um, it's war. And so it's a very interesting window, in a way, a painful one, to see what, you know, the divorce rate is like 50%, what so many children grow up with. And then um, how do they figure out their values? Now, of course, it depends on how old the kid was when the war started, but the war often started long before the divorce. It continues afterward, etc. So I have to tell you that even as a grown-up, is very difficult, but it's certainly super stressful for the kids. So this whole question about how do people develop into good judges with good values and try to figure out uh, what authorities to trust, all of that gets formed through one's um, development. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think we have... Um, um, such a breakdown, in a way, of cohesive standards, not only in journalism, but uh, in so many different settings, starting with childhood. So this is kind of a plea for peaceful divorces. <laughs> if I could just uh, interject as well, um, and you know, you, you raised the question, I think, to some extent, it gets at, can you ever really discern the truth, or you just have to throw your hands up? And I, I do want to um, make clear that there are a lot of efforts um, in, uh, from the clinical side and on the legal side to gather additional information rigorously and systematically with which to evaluate claims. And this is, say, on the clinical side, if you're treating someone, you actually want to know how many times did this happen. We've typically relied on self-report. Well, the future is digital phenotyping, collecting that data. In the situation you asked, you've got two you know, different stories. Well, you go out and you get a bunch of extra evidence in your world, right? You get additional sources. You get, and, and in law, we're trying to systematize that. And specifically about judges, um, it's not just that they're biased, but they're biased uh, in, based on empirical evidence in knowable uh, and predictable ways. And if you know that systematically, you can then suggest interventions that won't take care of every single case, but will, and the same thing in a corporate world, right, where you can begin to recognize what your systemic biases are and, and adjust. And I'd say on the hopeful side, I, I think there's some slow progress there. Um, it doesn't solve sort of the underlying human nature you, you, we've brought up several times, but it begins based on the collective research to say, okay, we know at broad level, here are some things that are happening. At a system level, can we put in some safeguards that will, for instance, in the judge, stop and think. If we have a emo quick emotional response, should we require that you don't give your opinion now, but you deliberate for an hour, as one example? And there are others. It seems to me, in a way, in law, you most of the time are deciding, uh, or not deciding, but the law is supposed to be deciding, is this person 
telling the truth about having not having stolen something or not having embezzled something or not having killed somebody. But in human relations, it's different because what you are in a way doing, you are constantly having to interpret and your interpretation may be wrong. So you may think in a couple who are fighting that my husband is a liar, but in fact he isn't. It's just how you interpret his behavior and vice versa. So there's a, it, it creates such a lack of clarity about, especially in, in, in psychology and human relations, what lying and truth is about. I have a question for everybody. What about people who lie for sport? Mm. Kind of confabulators, uh, like to make up stories. Would you like to address that subject a little bit? Can you give an example? Um, I can think of one. Okay. I'm joking. I mean, the <laughs> obvious one. <laughs> the president? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but in, sport, in sport, though. What? Um, no, I no, didn't you mean, mean sport. You mean people who like sociopaths? For sport, for oh, fun. For fun. Oh, for fun. I see. As, as a way of um, um, creating an impression or because it's... Uh, Pleasurable to um, deceive, it's pleasurable to fool people. No, it's also part yeah. of certain mental illness as well as sometimes well, that's part what, yeah. of, uh, deterioration of the brain, where the person keeps inventing things, which people Confabulation, know is not yeah. correct, but the person keeps inventing them to create a narrative. And I think there is this issue of people. Uh, lying or borderline lying in order to create a narrative for themselves about their lives, their past, their aims, their goals, etc. So I think it's a, it's a very important topic because it addresses the question of motivation. I mean, before we were talking about legal matters, okay, someone's fighting for their life. But what about people who just routinely confabulate and make things up and exaggerate and so forth and so on? And... Um, Sometimes people like that actually go to seek help uh, because, um, because it's compulsive and they can't stop themselves and they run into trouble. But of course it's very challenging to treat people like that as a clinician because they put you in a situation where you never know if they're lying or not to you or they tell you stories about I fooled this one and I told that one that and so forth and so on. So it puts you then in a position of either you're like the moralist, in which case you become the enemy, or how are you going to help them figure it all out about why they're doing it or uh, how to stop it, etc. It's it's a it's an interesting kind of question. So I was just curious. Uh, uh, what your experience is with any of that? I mean, I, I've encountered such people. Um, it took me quite a few months the first time I encountered such a person to understand that that's what they were and that such a thing existed. I like to believe I've gotten faster at it. Um, I feel like one of the things those experiences have taught me is how little consistency is actually required to be convincing. You know, we have this idea that, you know, one of the drawbacks of lying is then you've got to keep your story straight, which is true. But it's actually not that hard to just, oh, I thought I said something out or gaslighting. No, that's not what I said at all. Or that's not what I meant. 
or that's, oh, that's not a relevant fact, because even though you saw me steal this thing, what was actually happening is that I was pressured into it because, you know, and when you deal with these people, you see these um, incredible, uh, often very charismatic, um, manipulative, uh, it's, it's hard to do it justice. But to me, what the existence of such people and their, and the, their ability to operate says is that we're, we actually are relatively poor at enforcing epistemic norms, right? We, we're actually pretty bad at making people be self-consistent, although we often have a sense, right? We often know something is wrong. And I think the process of encountering these people multiple times is, is to develop that sense and to learn to trust it. Remember that play Six Degrees of Separation mm -hmm. was this, this uh, guy who was uh, insinuating himself into all kinds of situations and got away with it for the longest time. Oh, I'm fascinated by con men. It's such a crazy topic. So, okay, so that's an extreme case. But then we have situations of people who are just a little bit con many. And, and, and what's that like? We don't see, see them too often in the consulting room, but occasionally we do. And then it's really scary. I, I feel like the especially tricky case is when someone with that personality bent is telling you about an injustice that was done to them. And then you're in the challenging position of trying to understand to what extent do you believe their version of the story, which I'm sure you must have encountered. But it kind of goes back to the, the question we started with, right? So most people think, right, what distinguishes a good or a bad lie in terms of the moral sense is if it helps or harms others. And a lot of the, the fibbing, the impression management, the fooling is not directly harming an identified person. It's very easy to, right, to believe this is in sport and, right, people with a normal psychological profile really care about harm. What we care about is harming others. And so in the absence of evidence that I'm directly harming someone, it's quite easy to believe that I'm not actually doing anything wrong. Um, and you guys both brought up this interesting example of right, like the con man. I think something that makes it more complicated is we, we do actually have this uh, admirable narrative of people who are really good at deception. And right as kids, again, right, we read stories of the wily coyote, right? Like these characters who are able to do great things through deceiving others in clever ways, the trickster. <laughs> right. Um, and so there's, right, there's this other part of deception going through everyone's head that is like, there's good stuff here if I'm not, if I can't see the harm. Um, and that probably makes it right easy to, to keep going. Yeah, I think that's a, just to relate it maybe to learning as well. We know that, you know, a powerful mechanism for learning is, you know, what's the consequence? You know, if I just go out and steal something, I'm going to get punished there and then, so it's pretty clear that I shouldn't do that. But with the sort of cases you're telling about where it's sort of, you know, ongoing, little lies here, little lies there, you can't instantly see what the consequence is on that person, and that consequence might come quite far down the line as well, so it's quite hard to sort of tie it to your actions. So maybe that lack of, lack of learning is what allows it to, to continue, perhaps. Well, either lack of learning or learning that it works. All that as well, yeah. Also getting like, positive reinforcement from it maybe as well, yeah. You know, one of the interesting things developmentally is that very little kids, let's say five or under, more or less, they think that their parents practically read their minds. They, they think that the parents know everything that's going on. So if they do something they shouldn't and they get caught, 
um, they're not surprised because they kind of assume that their mom and dad kind of knew in the first place. There's this fantasy of parents being so omnipotent. And it's kind of a major developmental step in, the, uh, in, in sort of separation and developing one's identity to know that, in fact, if you say something that's not true, maybe they don't know. Mm. And, oh, you kind of left your own devices on your own, but you can do that. So then how do people decide, after all, that they should be truthful? It has something to do with what we call superego formation. In other words, people feel like um, they want to be loved and they want to be just like their parents, upright citizens, if they come from that kind of a family. So there's a whole story about that, uh, about who your models are, and that, uh, and that it's a, it's, you're going to love yourself if you're being kind of truthful um, and, and honest to yourself, and you're going to feel ashamed and, and guilty and not like yourself if you lie, etc. Very basic stuff, but it's something that develops gradually. Mm-hmm. And then what we call, you know, sort of beginnings of latency at the age where in all cultures people go to school and so on, they get very clear rules of what are the rules of that culture. And then they have a sense of belonging to the community if they obey the rules. So there's a lot of incentive for socialization, both from the family and from the community, to be a good citizen. But, um, but there are often situations where that development is faulty because, let's say, the parents are doing something deceitful, like one of the parents is having an affair and says, ah, don't tell dad or whatever, and then the kid doesn't know what to think anymore, and so that this... this uh, what should be a very solid sense of uh, right and wrong gets bent and twisted, and the rest is history mm. as to what, what, what then happens with mm. that. Mm. So in our work as, as analysts, we try to go back and understand something about the origins of some of these um, lesions in one's sense of integrity, which are manifold. You know, I think all of us, keeping in, in line with the, these comments, uh, most of us can seem to be able to appreciate pretty well, I guess because we've all lied to some degree, what the incentives there are to telling uh, a falsehood and that it may be adaptive in certain instances. It may be con men, for example, and they do unfortunately tend to be men more often than women, not exclusively. There's Elizabeth Holmes, but men seem to lead the pack when it comes to that. Anyway, there's a new idea. Um, I believe the anthropologist's name is Richard Rangham. His last name is Rangham who's written about the self-domestication of the human, you know, the humans, human race, I guess. And uh, in it, he said that there was a sort of a movement towards trying to get rid of the more aggressive, violent, but also lying and cheating uh, members of the, of the group, of the tribe. And this was a way of uh, pushing back against that type that may be uh, selected to a degree, the con men type, con man type, who may have been selected. So, again, I'm going back to my feeling about being unbiased. There are some pressures and incentives towards being unbiased. And I think that's sort of what Rangan was trying to bring out in, his, in this new book about self-domestication. So, I wonder, is that in this sort of skepticism or this sort of general pessimism about bias, don't we believe there are incentives? You mentioned, Anna, trying to live up to the ideal of your parents, assuming your parents 
or honest people, aren't there incentives to being fair and honest, even when it's a challenge to you personally? I mean, certainly there are such incentives invented in the professional structure of journalism, uh, which I think actually surprises many people. Um, it, journalism turned out to be more idealistic than I thought it would be, um, actually. Um, uh, but there are both internal incentives in terms of norms and standards. Um, and, you know, I sometimes think of Columbia Journalism School as the, this cathedral of journalism, right? It's this big old building and there's plaques on the walls and it's got the Pulitzer Prizes, right? It's a very, it functions as a cathedral. It's like this sort of awe-inspiring symbol. Um, but there's also just reputation, right? If you're wrong too many times, you have trashed your credibility. Uh, unfortunately, the flip side of that is that it means also as a public uh, information source or a public figure, um, you are subject to political attacks. So, I mean, that's part of what is happening now is there are enormous political attacks um, on the press, which is, you know, certainly not new in a world historical sense, but is relatively new in this country. Mm. I mean, you, you, you could make a case for dishonesty being good in some cases as well, right? You know, in World War II, Churchill would lie about how well we were doing, you know, in the war, and that was to, you know, really encourage us to keep going, and that's true with individual cases of optimism as well. You know, it's quite good if you get rejected from a job interview or asking someone out for a date, you know, to really believe that next time, you know, it's going to be successful. So, you know, sort of delusion at different levels can be, can be a good thing in certain cases, I think. Yeah. Look, if, if you uh, are a, a psychoanalyst like I am, uh, if you go to a party and there's a patient of yours there, uh, you are not going to shake the hands and tell everybody, oh, here's my patient. Mm -hmm. You're going to keep quiet about right. it. You may not even acknowledge the patient in order not to create any problems with issues of confidentiality. So you are being deceitful, you are not actively mm -hmm. lying, but, but you have to. And there are many situations where uh, one has, in a way, there is no other way but... So I realize that there's this whole moral component and there's this whole area of terrible to lie. But there's also a usefulness mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. The question is, how does one really distinguish between these? And is it only based on the outcome, on the motivation? What, what makes the difference? And then there are all, 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 all degrees of lying. For example, we all enjoy being deceived by a magician. We know he's deceiving, we know she, and yet we have tremendous enjoyment from it. So there are all these complexities having to do with neuroscience, which I think perhaps we don't fully understand, mm -hmm. that have to do with this phenomenon we call lying. A lot of the judgment is also culturally bound. So in the U.S., we, we believe in autonomy, we believe in knowledge, right? Obviously, there's some variance in that from person to person and different personality traits and political leanings. But mostly, we're a country that believes in autonomy or the culture here. So I should have knowledge for self-governance, and that's part of the reason that honesty is so important. But that's not 
true everywhere, right? So in Eastern Asian cultures, right, dignity um, and authority are more important than necessarily self-knowledge. So, right, there, there's, it's not as if the whole world is living in this debate that, right, should we be telling the truth? In a lot of other cultures, they're saying, no, we, we shouldn't always be telling the truth, um, right? So medicine's an example. So I, I've done studies in oncology units and in the US actually a lot of patients want more false hope than their doctors are willing to give them um, but in China it's very it's very common um, to get false hope and that's part of the expectation we could argue whether that's normatively good or normatively bad but um, there's certainly lots of different beliefs you know aside from the belief that truthfulness is what should be guiding most of our behavior. Movie. there's a movie about that yeah the farewell movie. yeah mm-hmm. yeah what's the movie the farewell well. Yeah, about the difference between China, how that's handled, the truth about a medical prognosis is handled in China versus a U.S. and U.S. It, it does raise a question about how much we want to know about ourselves. Um, there's both a medical question. One specific example is uh, increasingly we're able through brain and blood biomarkers and genetic uh, information to determine point. one's probabilistic likelihood of developing Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and other dementia. And the country and other populations roughly split 50-50. 50% of people say, I want to know because I want to plan, so forth. The other 50% say, given that we don't have a cure right, right. now, yeah. don't tell me. Mm. But there's a deeper way in which we have to ask ourselves, do we really want to know who we are? Right? And this is in part when we say, you've got to go to some counseling. Why? Because you're not seeing who you are, how angry you are, how narcissistic, or you know, you're not seeing what you are as a parent. Um, and that's a really challenging question. Do we want to know how much of the whole truth? That was very difficult for myself, certainly. I, I think for many of us. Um, but it gets started, I think, at this question. Again, this was a medical one. It's almost easier sometimes to compartmentalize. You know, what about me as a husband, as a father, uh, you know, as a friend, as a colleague? Um, how well did I actually do that? Right? It's, it's, it's challenging to confront that. Um, maybe more challenging than what we do in law. Okay. All right, great. Thank you, everyone. Um, I think it's time we could have a few of the audience members ask questions. If you line up back here, um, I'm sure our panelists would be happy to respond. This is a question for everyone on the panel. When is the time that each one of you lied and reflecting back on that would have will tell that lie again? I'll answer that. I've got I was thinking about telling this earlier. So my brother and I are two years apart. We look kind of similar, so much so that when we go out and we recently celebrated our joint 40th birthday, he's 39, I'm 41, he said, this is the year we're both 40. And a lot of people said, oh, that's great. We we wore the same clothes, these Elvis costumes. Are you twi- Are you twins? Yeah, we're twins. It's our birth. And we said that all night. And after a while, we're like, let's see, you know, let's see what, what can we add to the story, you know? From, we're not from Hawaii. We're from Hawaii and all this kind of stuff. Would I do it again if I turned 40 again? Absolutely. It was great. <laughs> Everyone got a kick out of it. You know, I don't, going to your question, I don't think anyone was irreparably harmed. Um, yeah. I don't know how it, I, I, we were intentional about it. It was not true. <laughs> That's a good one. Um... We'll just go for one beer. <laughs> I, 
create a system of laws at the, at the border, I would do it again. What? <laughs> I created a system of laws at the border representing immigrants trying to come into the country, and I would do it again. Pardon me? <laughs> you are saying it here in public. Yes. <laughs> I'm having trouble coming up with one I told, although I'm sure I have. Um, but I can recall like circumstances in which I was grateful being lied to. Um, so I was planning my wedding the first year of graduate school when I was preparing for my qualifying exam. My, uh, my grandfather wanted to invite all of his friends to my wedding which we didn't have space for, like totally wasn't feasible. We didn't even have enough invitations for them. My mother said, don't worry, like you study, I got this, we're not gonna invite them. I found out like the day before my wedding that she had photocopied my wedding invitations and sent them to all of my grandfather's <laughs> friends who she knew wouldn't come, right? She knew that like, this is gonna be the easiest thing. She, I'm not gonna be harmed. I'm going to be able to live in my bubble and not stressed about uh, my wedding. And I'm great, like I'm very grateful that she pulled, pulled it off. <laughs> Um, so my quest, um, comment slash question is more about as a physician and the sort of the sense of knowing sometimes when the patient's not telling the truth and the search for the truth um, to prove that the patient's not telling the truth, like patients with pseudo seizures or a fictitious disorder, malingering, um, and how sometimes just the sense that as humans sometimes we feel that sense when we're not being told the truth, even when we could even have clinical evidence, uh, in, like factitious disorder, that it, it's not true. And we search for some sort of inconsistency or sometimes we really can't find it. So I often think of that because we really trust that what the patient's telling us is true. Well, so. Maybe I, I, I'm also a part-time a neuropsychiatrist. So that's a joke. I am a neuropsychiatrist, but um, full time, uh, and I've treated people with pseudo seizures and fictitious uh, illness. And um, it, there's, it's a, I, I think the answer is very simple. It's just that I think that as a as a physician, you have to not feel offended and angry that the person's been deceiving you. Often they don't know they're even or why they're deceiving you. And so, being disarmed, not feeling angry or with the patient, it seems to me to be pretty easy just to say, well, you're you're not having real epilepsy, you don't have real epilepsy, and, or this isn't a real illness, and, and patients respond incredibly well to that, I find. I, I haven't had patients uh, who've come to me with those sorts of problems leave because I said, you know, I don't believe, I don't believe this is a real, uh, the diagnosis you think it may be. And just just being honest. Last thing. <laughs> um, to the lawyers or the legal people, that, is the Amitol interview ever used in legal cases? Truth serum, as it's called. Is truth serum ever used? Not in the United States. It has been used in the last few years in India in some cases. Uh, there have been two cases of brain-based, MRI-based lie detection where the in, that was proffered uh, in both a state case in Maryland and a federal case in Tennessee. It was excluded. Uh, and um, there are some other types of technologies that are being proffered. They're not yet ready. Um, for another day, there's a discussion about it, and we have this panel in 20 years if some of those technologies have come into the courtroom. But is, um, is polygraph still used in U.S. courts? The polygraph is used uh, extensively in the investigation phase, but is not, it's not typically allowed. It's typically excluded uh, in the guilt phase, in the courtroom phase. It's also used sometimes in some 
uh, and probation and parole considerations, for instance, with sex offenders if they're determined if they're ready to go back to society? Um, uh, it's partly common, partly uh, questioned. First, I would like to say, let's be honest. Truth is not very entertaining. What about literature? What about um, art? What about creativity? It's all established on, um, on lies. What's the question? <laughs> it's um, a question. I'm saying that it's partly question, partly comment. And, um, oh, <laughs> no, yes, thank you. Uh, and in American society, when I came here 25 years ago, I started to learn that deception, for example, advertising, advertising it, it's probably most, um, uh, pre no, most obvious than probably in any other society. You have to learn deception. And what we right now see in our White House, we see that... Uh, Guy who obviously lying, and it's kind of very entertaining for both sides. <laughs> Hillary is not that entertaining at all. And from one side, is like, I'm outraged. From other side, I'm, uh, it's, uh, she said what I was thinking for a long time. So it's kind of, we have this entertainment, and it's... Um, and he probably won't because of his, that he is good in lying, and Hillary is not. Hillary is not good in lying, we, everybody agree. So could you please say that what about all these areas like advertisement, uh, literature, uh, uh, arts uh, in general? Where we should put the, them, what they, their role in our society? Mm -hmm. I would make a very big distinction between art and literature and advertisement because, because advertisement is to, I mean, unless you say that art and literature is to sell its own product, but it's considered fabrication or fiction, whereas advertisement is trying to sell something um, and to embellish it for purpose of selling it. But I think the whole question of lying and fabrications and art is a very interesting spectrum because a really good uh, impersonator or, or one of these people who's a um, practice liar is kind of an artist. Um, they are, um, they have the finesse and the um, um, ability to create illusion and so forth. So there's a kinship with artists. And Thomas Mann is somebody who was very, very interested in this issue, and he's written some interesting things about it. One of them is um, a novel called uh, Felix Krull, The Adventures of Felix Krull, and it's based on the memoirs of somebody who was a very famous, of all things, Romanian swindler. And uh, I'm saying of all things because I'm from Romania. <laughs> um, and he... Um, he was fascinated by this. Uh, the name of the swindler was different, but in the Thomas Mann story, he wrote, he worked on this novel on and off for many years till the end of his life, and I don't think he even finished it, because this guy was able to impersonate so many people and um, 
rob hotels and so forth. He was quite uh, um, a swindler. There's another story by Thomas Mann called Tonio Kroger. It's a short story in which the main character is kind of torn between being a businessman and an artist, because his father was a businessman, his mother was artistic, and he could never quite find his footing anywhere, but he's mostly an artist. And in it, he's fascinated by the whole question of what does it take to be an artist compared to kind of a square, conventional, super straight type of guy. And how come he couldn't find his place in a super straight world? And maybe to be an artist, you have to be a little outside of things, an outsider to be able to describe things, and therefore already not adhering to the rules of the community. So. I don't know if this, is, this addresses what you're asking, but I've thought about it in the context of this preparing for the round table. So on that subject of deception and versus an honest person, why is it that in literature and in theater, the most fascinating characters are the bad guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. OK, anybody comment? Yes, in law also, no? Yes, I think the bad guys have the characteristics. Well, yeah, the answer is yes. I won't go into the other stuff. <laughs> yes. You asked about whether it's in law, and I said yes. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's related to the issue why, why are, it seems, because I think the, the, the final research in this is not clear, but it looks as though falsehoods, as, as uh, uh, yeah. you were mentioning earlier, uh, spreads faster than truth. Yeah. And it's, it's more sensational. So I, that's a simple version of why I think these, these stories. And also, I think there's a certain tension when someone's telling a lie, and typically as part of some work of literature or, or, or stage production, you're aware there's this tension as an audience, and that creates tension in you. And then you're, how, what's going to happen next, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that sort of generates a lot of interest in, in, in lying. That's, yeah. That's good. Yeah, link, link to that. I think question? Yeah, no, I, I like that. I like that explanation, that it creates a tension, because actually the essence of theater is conflict. So if it's everybody agree, yeah, we all agree, we are, it's not interesting. The fact that you disagree, the fact that there's, it's not so simple, the complexity, I think, is what draws us to the facets. Yeah, yeah linked link to that, I think what we, don't, we often aren't actually that fascinated with people that are purely evil. What we really like is people that are sort of essentially good, but a bit flawed. And right. that might be because that's basically like us, right? Like we want to be seen as these good people but we do have these sort of weaknesses. You know, we do lie, like, most days to some, some degree. So maybe it resonates with us, those types of characters. I don't know. When, when you had spoken about adultery and, and the children of, in conflicted families, I, I immediately was thinking of all these fabulous characters, like Madame Bovary, and just the literature really is not, is not made up of goody-goody housewives. It's the ones that, you know, are peeking through the blinds. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, your explanation of, you know, the, why we're more interested, because it creates a tension. I think mm -hmm. you really hit on something. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so many things occurred to me. I really was thinking about sort of the demise of religion and these kind of strong value systems 
um, and maybe the rise and acceptance of the lying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was one thing that occurred to me. But on a, on a bigger scale, I'm wondering whether um, the fact that there seem to be no, long, no repercussions and no punishment for lying on sort of a governmental scale, on corporate scale, whether you think of cover-ups or whether you think of our president sort of being able to lie with kind of no, uh, nothing's been done about it. I mean, he hasn't been impeached. He hasn't, you know, there's no punishment. And what you see, um, you know, I think of the clergy and all those cover-ups and sort of the lack of punishment for lying, what you see as a long-term outlook for our democracy, you know, where lying is just kind of accepted on a leadership level. I said there's allegedly a legal system that is supposed to deal with a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, my field is in the business of accountability, right? So, I mean, that's, I I would, say that there have been consequences, maybe not the consequences there should have been or the consequences you would have preferred. Um, But uh, so I'll take a very concrete, specific one, which is that um, Facebook collaborates with a number of fact-checking organizations. And if a fact-checking organization rates uh, an article as substantially false, they will reduce the distribution of it on Facebook. And apparently... Facebook says you lose 80% of your reach if a fact checker tags you as false. So that's a very concrete um, economic hit uh, for being labeled um, as a lie. They could do more, though, right, as well. I think you could have some rating of information, like, potentially. Oh, yeah, like, like, yeah, let's, let's do this for another 90 minutes. Yeah. So we can go into, into, I mean, we did, I thought I was actually going to be asked to talk about all the disinformation world. Yeah, tell us. Oh. In the next uh, five minutes. <laughs> I, I, I think we're a little late for a long explanation. But um, suffice it to say that all of the major uh, social media platforms are deep in this issue. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult issue in part because it is an issue of who gets to decide. So it's inextricably political, it's inextricably legal as well because if you have a global company, whose standards do you use? Or do you show different people in different countries different things, which has its own implications and problems? So it's not at all a simple question. Um, and then there's the actual, how do you decide if something is a lie? Um, and the platforms have mostly fallen back on essentially journalistic fact-checking organizations, um, which um, use a essentially open-ended variety of methods to try to verify things. You know, you'll, you'll interview sources, you'll compare pictures, you'll do technical analyses of the sources of a piece of information. Um, I mean, it's it's... It's research in the broadest sense, and, it, and anything is fair game. Um, and the idea is to try to produce these consequences, right? Um, uh, and in the sort of immediate sense, as in this article is false, and in the broader sense, as in, you know, we did this investigation, and we concluded that, you know, um, somebody is embezzling money, or uh, I think the, the sex scandals in the Catholic Church are actually a prime example of the role of journalism in democracy, right? There's, 
there is a, a movie about this. Yes, you saw that's an excellent movie. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I understand if you're pessimistic, but I don't think it's fair to say that there are no consequences. Well, I want to thank everyone for their contribution today, and and that's oh, you have you one more question? Is that we? Have, no need. We need the microphone. I know a guy really wanted a job, so he applies, does the interview, and he tells the. Uh, interviewer, I, I can't work on the Sabbath. The interviewer says, okay, you're hired. What he doesn't say, and I said to him, why didn't you tell the interviewer that you also don't want, want to work on the religious holidays, which will come in six months? And then he said, well, they won't give me the job. Okay. He had already been fired and sued on a different job that he had before because he sprung this on that company. I can't work on the Jewish holidays. And he was fired from that job. So he had some experience with this. Then I said, well, what would happen if they hired you on this job you're now applying for? Oh, by the way, on that first job, he won $20,000 in court for religious intolerance. So he, would, he said to me, I would sue them. And I said, you know, you're a, excuse me, a fucking liar. <laughs> And I throw it out to you. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the outcome of. Is he a relative? <laughs> the answer to that is yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I could. I could actually. I could actually embellish that, but I won't. I think I've done I'm enough. Sorry. I think I've done enough. Sorry that you have a relative with this. I'll just say, I'll just say, I think you told the truth. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, that's all.